I would like you to take a Bible and find Mark chapter 3. We've read this passage, but we're going to reference it, we're going to look at it, we're going to work our way through it this morning. Sometimes when you live in the Bible Belt, you hear ideas repeated so much that even though they're not biblical, you start to assume that they are biblical or they might be biblical. And I want to just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Many times in the Bible Belt, you hear people say something to the effect of, God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. It's certainly true that the Bible says God will not let believers be tempted beyond what they can bear, but if you read what Paul says to the church in Corinth, he actually says that at one point in his life, God burdened him with far more than he was able to bear, and we have every expectation that God may do that in our lives so that we learn to rely on God and not on our own abilities. So it's not a a biblical sentiment in any way, shape, or form. Another thing that people say often is, well, I believe everything happens for a reason. I believe everything happens for a reason, but I don't think that's the best way of talking about God's sovereignty and God's providence over all things. And I don't think that statement is particularly helpful in dealing with the realities of our sin and the consequences of our sin, because sometimes the reason that a thing happened is that you did something sinful, foolish, stupid, or somebody else did. And yes, God is sovereign over all of that, but just sort of boiling it down to, well, everything happens for a reason, I don't think is the most helpful way or the most biblical way of talking about the sovereignty of God. One more that you will hear people say or ask about from time to time is the idea that suicide is the unforgivable sin or an unforgivable sin. Sin And our passage this morning is Mark chapter 3. The actual phrase unforgivable sin is not a phrase that you will find in Mark 3, but you will hear Jesus talking about a sin that he calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And using the words of Jesus, Jesus says whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has Forgiveness. So he doesn't say this is the unforgivable sin, but he does say the person who's committed this sin never has forgiveness. Suicide is not in question here, and the idea that suicide is an unforgivable sin is really rooted in an unbiblical view of salvation and how God grants salvation to his people. And if you get confused about that, you might end up with some sort of unbiblical idea that suicide is the or an unforgivable sin. So what I want us to do this morning as we talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to be very careful how we listen to the text and to think, what does Jesus say about this sin in this passage and what does he not say about this sin in this passage? And so we want to understand what's happening here. We need to start with a little bit of context. So you and I read just a moment ago, Mark 3, 22 to 30. If you look at the verses just before our passage, and then you look at the verses just after our passage, it becomes obvious that at this moment in Jesus' ministry, his family thought that he was out of his mind. That's an interesting thing to think about, but his family at this moment thinks that he has lost his mind, that he's out of his mind, he's off his rocker, whatever you want to say. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's very popular. He's been teaching, he's been healing people, he's been casting out demons, 
as you read through the Gospel of Mark and compare it to the Gospel of John, it's clear that he has not yet fed the 5,000, which means that he has not yet preached the bread of life sermon, which means that most of his followers have not yet walked away saying, that guy is a bridge too far. That happened. After he fed the 5,000, after he preached the bread of life sermon, many of his followers turned back and said, this guy is completely nuts. And they didn't want anything to do with him. They thought his teaching was offensive. But that hasn't happened yet. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is still riding a wave of popularity. The crowds love him. His family thinks that he's out of his mind. And the religious authorities in Jerusalem are beginning to see Jesus as a threat. And so in this story, they have sent a group of scribes from Jerusalem to Capernaum, where Jesus is preaching and healing and casting out demons, to investigate what's going on with Jesus. What is a scribe? A scribe is half pastor, half lawyer. Can you imagine anything worse? Half pastor, half lawyer. That's who they send. Send the pastor lawyers up there to figure out exactly what's going on with Jesus. Now, one thing I want to say to you as you try to make sense of a difficult passage like this one, and this is a difficult passage, you need to be thoughtful about how you study the Bible. Here's a couple of thoughts for you, a couple of suggestions. When you're studying the Gospels, you're reading the Gospels, one thing that you ought to do is you ought to read the Gospels vertically. What that means is you start in the beginning of a Gospel and you go all the way to the end of it. You read Mark chapter 1 all the way to Mark chapter 16. And as you do that, when you get to the end, it will be clearer because you've read the beginning. And when you go back and read the beginning a second time, it will be more clear because you've already read the end of the story. You read vertically through the gospel from beginning to end. Another thing that you ought to do is you ought to read horizontally because we don't just have one gospel, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when you read a story like this that does have some confusing parts to it, you ought to say, does Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, do they all tell this story? Does another one of the Gospels tell this story? Because when you read it in a different Gospel, it may be presented a little bit different. For example, when you read this story in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew adds details that help you piece things together. Mark doesn't tell you all of the details that Matthew does. When you read this in the Gospel of Luke, you read the story that sounds very familiar to this, but the part about Jesus talking about blasphemy of the Spirit comes a little bit later, and there's a reason for that. These are not contradictory accounts of what happened, but they're like puzzle pieces that fit together. They're complementary in nature, and they fill out the picture. They help us have a, a clearer picture of what the gospel authors are describing. So here's the big idea of our passage. Mark 3, 22 to 30. There is no forgiveness for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because it is an eternal sin. What I've tried to do in that big idea is not explain anything, but rather just say what the text says. That's what this discussion between Jesus and the scribes is building to, is this idea in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The question is still on the table. I haven't answered it in this big idea. What exactly is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 
That's what we're going to try to build towards and piece some things together as we work our way through this passage. Now, let me start with an idea. I want to start with something called the big lie theory. The big lie theory. Big lie theory says that if you go out in public and you tell a big enough, bold enough, crazy enough lie, and you keep saying it over and over and over again, and you say it with passion and with conviction that people will eventually believe you. Small lies people might pick up on, but big lies, if you just keep saying it over and over and over, and if you stick to the story, eventually people will believe you. This concept of the big lie theory actually goes back to World War I and World War II, and there's accusations between the, the Jews and the Nazis about the, they told a big lie about us, no, they told a big lie about us, but it's passed down to us today, and the place that you see it most often today is in Ponzi schemes and money schemes. People saying something so ridiculous, it's over the top, you know it's too good to be true, but there's just part of you that wants to believe that get-rich-quick scheme. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In college, when Brooke and I were dating, I worked at Amarillo Community Federal Credit Union. That's a lot to say when you answer the phone. Thank you for calling Emerald Community Federal Credit Union. So I worked at this credit union and I was a teller. Worked in the drive up, worked in the lobby, normal teller stuff. One of the things we did every week is we met with one of the bank vice presidents or sometimes the president and they would say, hey, y'all are doing a great job or hey, you're doing a lousy job or hey, we're gonna do this different or hey, here's something new. And in those teller meetings, one of the things they would do is brief us on the latest scheme and scam that was going around. So back when I was in college, the most common way these came across was a fax machine. You remember what a fax machine is? So usually the vice president or the president would say, hey, if you get a fax about this offer for sending money or doing this transaction, it's just a scam. And we would look at these and we would say, obviously it's a scam. Everybody knows it's a scam. Nobody would buy this. None of us are gonna send money across the world. So we thought. I worked at the credit union for one year. Brooke and I got married. We ended up in Kentucky so that I could go to school. And we'd been in Kentucky for a couple of years when I heard a news story about Emerald Community Federal Credit Union the president of the credit union believed a big lie. He got one of these faxes, emails, whatever, and it said, hey, if you will wire this much money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to this overseas account, we will kindly deliver a suitcase full of unmarked bills to your front door. And he thought, this is great. I can wire the money, I'll get the suitcase, I'll put the money back in, then I can keep the extra. Everyone in the world knew that it was a big lie. But for whatever reason, somebody told it, and they told it with enough conviction and enough convincing whatever, that he believed it. It's a big lie. Everyone knew it, he knew it. But he wanted to believe it. In this passage, there's a big lie. And the big lie comes from these scribes, these pastor slash lawyers who are sent from Jerusalem to Capernaum to investigate Jesus. 
And we're going to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here in just a minute, but I want to make sure you understand what's happening in the story because if you don't understand the story, you're not going to be able to make sense of what Jesus says in the end. So let's talk about the story. First part of the story is this. The scribes from Jerusalem accused Jesus of being in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's the first scene in this story. Pastor lawyers show up. Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man who was blind and mute. He could not see and he could not speak. Jesus cast the demon out of this man publicly. These scribes see it happen. The man can now see and he can speak. And what they say in response is, that happened according to the power of Beelzebul. Now, if you have a study Bible with notes at the bottom, there's all sorts of ideas about what Beelzebul refers to. Some people will tell you that the name refers to the Lord of the flies, the Lord of the dung, the Lord of the trash, this unclean deity. Some people will tell you that Beelzebul means Lord of the house or Lord of the temple. That seems to be the most common view amongst serious Bible scholars, Lord of the house, Lord of the temple. Some people think it's a callback to the Old Testament, to the Canaanite rain god, the Canaanite thunder god, Baal, and that somehow we're talking about the Old Testament deity of Baal. Here's the honest truth. There's not a person in this room, me included, who is enough of an ancient linguist to come down with anything definitive, other than to say, here's some options, but also to say the text tells us what they meant doesn't necessarily tell us what they're referring to with this old reference, but it tells us what they meant in the moment. And if you look at verse 22, you note that they say, this man is possessed by Beelzebul, and then the very next thing they say helps you understand what they mean. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And their idea, Beelzebul, can be equated with the prince of demons, And if you look at the very next verse, verse 23, Jesus jumps into the conversation and he begins to talk about Satan casting out Satan. And notice that no one in this story raises their hand and says, wait a minute, we're not talking about Satan. Jesus knows what they're talking about and they know what they're talking about. This name Beelzebul functioned for them a little bit like the name Benedict Arnold functions for you and me. I mean, there was a Benedict Arnold. That was a guy's name. His mother named him Benedict, last name Arnold. But if I call you Benedict Arnold and you've done any study in American history, you know that I'm not confused about your name. What I'm saying is you're a traitor. You're a turncoat. You've betrayed somebody. They're using this title, Beelzebul. It might refer to a number of things originally, but in the moment, what they're saying is, this man, Jesus is using the power of the prince of the demons, of Satan himself, to cast out demons. So that's scene one. Scene two, Jesus responds. He responds to the accusations by teaching in parables. And Mark tells us that he called these people to himself. It's a gracious thing to do. And he began to teach them in parables. And it seems that there's two parables here. The first parable centers on a house or a kingdom. So one of the reasons people think Beelzebul might mean Lord of the house, Lord of the temple. Jesus says if a house is divided against itself, 
if a kingdom is divided against itself, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, the whole thing's doomed. The kingdom's going to crumble. The house is going to fall. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That doesn't make any sense. One person destroying his own kingdom. That's ridiculous. The second parable centers on a strong man who has a house. And in that parable, the strong man gets tied up so that someone else can plunder his house. And if you read the parable in context, you understand what Jesus is saying is Satan is like the strong man who has this house. There's that word again, this house. And I'm here to tie him up and take his stuff. He had that man. He was blind and mute. And I took him. I set him free. What Jesus is saying in that parable is, I'm not here to use the power of Satan. I'm here to tie him up and exercise authority over Satan. Two parables, both of them saying this is a ridiculous accusation that I'm doing this by the power of the evil one. Lastly, scene three, there's a warning. Jesus said there would be no forgiveness for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This is a point where because this is so debated, because there's so many views on this, you've got to be careful and you've got to say what the text says and you've got to listen to what the text doesn't say. Jesus does not say, you have committed the unforgivable sin. He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't say that any of these people necessarily have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Maybe they have. Maybe they're really, really close to it and Jesus is warning them. And what Jesus actually says is, there is a sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and the one who commits that sin, who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. Why? Because they're guilty of an eternal sin. So the question is, that's the story, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I sat down with several groups of people this week. Our staff, our elders, some men that I meet with for Bible study, and I just asked them, tell me what you have heard people say that this sin is. Think about someone who maybe is concerned that they've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and tell me what it is they did to make them so concerned that they had done this thing. A very popular answer among many scholars is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that could only be done by people who were on the earth while Jesus was on the earth performing miracles. Basically, you had to be there to do it. And since you're here and not there, you really don't have to worry about this sin because you haven't seen the things that they've seen or that they saw, and therefore you don't even need to really worry about this. It was just something that Jesus was addressing to the people who were standing right there. That's one view. But with that view, you've got to wrestle with a bunch of other verses in the New Testament that seem to talk about something that will not be forgiven as well. And We're going to talk about some of those verses in just a minute. So I don't know that that's the best view. Some people have the idea that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this has been pretty popular, say, in the last hundred years, since the birth of the charismatic movement, the birth of the Pentecostal movement. 
Some people will say to you, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, is anybody who looks at what we would just say some of the excesses of charismatic worship and says, that's not right. The Spirit is moving, they say, and for you to look at that and say, hey, you're out of control, hey, you shouldn't do that, hey, I'm not sure that that's biblical. If you do that, if you criticize someone's quote-unquote spirit-led, spirit-filled worship, that you have then blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the best view either because there are many verses in the New Testament that actually tell us exactly how we should and should not worship as the people of God. Most commonly, as I've talked to people this last week and as I've talked to people throughout my life, most people tend to operate with the assumption that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is any time you say one bad thing about the Holy Spirit. Maybe you use the Holy Spirit in the same sentence with a four-letter word. Maybe you say something about, I don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Anything negative that you may say about the Holy Spirit. You just say it one time and it's sort of out there and once you say it, then it's too late. I don't think that's the best view either. Rather than try to just give you a nice, neat definition of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, let's attack it from four different angles looking at this passage. Let's start with this. Number one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a willful rejection of the truth. Someone who commits this sin is willfully rejecting the truth. For these people standing here talking to Jesus, these scribes, they have seen Jesus cast a demon out of this man, blind man, mute man, and now he can see and now he can talk. They have seen it happen. They have seen that Jesus did not hurt this man or destroy this man, but he healed this man. It's obvious to them what has happened. And yet because of what their mission is, being sent from Jerusalem, they turn around and they say, this man is using the power of Beelzebul the prince of the demons. They know what is true. It's obvious in front of them and they willfully turn a blind eye to it. This makes me think of Romans chapter one. You can look at Romans chapter one on your own. In Romans one, Paul says that in creation, God has revealed himself to all people. In the heavens, in the rivers, in the oceans, in the mountains, in the things that have been created, God has revealed himself to all people. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And yet Paul says that left to ourselves, what do we do with that knowledge? We suppress it. We suppress it. Not only do we reject it, but we know it's there and we willfully, intentionally push it down and we want nothing to do with it. That's what these men are doing in this passage. The truth is in front of them and they are willfully, intentionally rejecting the truth. Secondly, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a persistent, ongoing rebellion. It is persistent and ongoing. If you look at verse 22, I'm reading the ESV. It says this, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. The tense of that Greek verb, were saying, is important because what it literally means is they kept on saying it. It's not like they just said it once and then said, wait, I want to take that back. 
It's not like they said, well, maybe this is what's going on. And they just sort of threw it out there and put it on the table for discussion or debate. They were saying it. They kept on saying it. It was willful rejection of the truth, and it was persistent, ongoing rebellion. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Be done with the idea that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing that you might do or say. Like if you put the wrong syllables together and the wrong words and the wrong sentence, too bad you'll never be forgiven. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a willful rejection of the truth and ongoing persistent rebellion. It's what we read in Hebrews chapter 6. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. I'll throw it up on the screen. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. The author of Hebrews is not describing people who were saved and lost their salvation. Author of Hebrews is talking about people who were around the truth. They were exposed to the truth. What was true about God, what is true about Jesus was plain to them. And when it talks about them falling away, it's not saying they made a one-time mistake. It's talking about ongoing, persistent rebellion. It's the same thing you read in Hebrews chapter 10, a follow-up passage in the same book. If we go on sinning, It's not talking about a one-time sin that you feel bad about and you repent of and you confess to God. Ongoing sin, deliberate sin. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What I'm telling you is that whatever Jesus is talking about here, it's the same thing being discussed in Romans 1. It's the same thing being discussed in the book of Hebrews. This is a willful rejection of the truth. It is persistent, ongoing rebellion. And thirdly, it is calling evil good and good evil. So we're adding to what this sin looks like in our lives or in somebody's life, calling evil good and and good evil. God warned his people about this in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 5 Verse 20, the prophet declared woe. That is a word of damnation. It's a word of judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those people. They look at the good and they say it's evil. And they look at the evil and they say that it's good. You'll find the same idea in Romans chapter 1. Can I tell you what's happening in Mark chapter 3? The light of the world has come. The light of the world has come to save sinful people. And these people in this story, these scribes from Jerusalem, they look at the light of the world and they say, that's darkness. They know it's light. It's obvious. It's light. And they say it's darkness. It's obvious that it's the power of God. And they say, nope, that's the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's the power of Satan. Why would they do that? Well, if you read horizontally in the Gospels, you come to a verse in John chapter 3. John 3, 19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, 
It's a willful rejection of the truth. It is a persistent, ongoing act of rebellion against God. It's looking at good and saying it's evil and looking at evil and saying it's good. Lastly, fourthly, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit involves a complete lack of repentance. A complete lack of repentance. One of the more helpful books I've had in my library over the years that I've been in ministry is a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible. And they've got a section on this sin. Here's a quote from the book. The nature of this sin is such that no one, uh, that, excuse me, the nature of this sin is such that one does not repent of it because those who commit it and persist in it do not know that they are sinning. That's an important aspect of what you're reading about in Mark 3. It's an important part of what you read in Hebrews 6 and 10. It's an important part of what you read in Romans 1. It's an important part of what you read in 1 John 5 and John talking about the sin that leads to death. There's no repentance. It's like the book of Judges where there's only rebellion and no one cries out to the Lord for mercy and everything spirals down into chaos and darkness. Listen, when you and I read this story and we hear about a, an unforgivable sin. Can I tell you what I think most of us conjure up in our minds? Unforgivable sin. Most of us start to imagine a person who has committed this sin, whatever you think it is. You picture someone who's committed this sin and you picture someone who realizes that they've committed it and who says to a priest or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or whoever, a friend, they say, man, I feel really bad about what I've done. I, man, I wish I could undo it. I wish I could go back. I feel rotten about it. I feel terrible. But I just, you know, I want to be forgiven, but God is just up in heaven. His hands are, I've tied God's hands. There's nothing he can do because I've done the one thing that you weren't allowed to do. That's an entirely unbiblical category of person. There is no person who has committed this sin who will repent. There is no one who has committed this sin that feels sorry that they've committed this sin. The final manifestation of what Jesus is describing here is what you see in the biblical description of hell. The Bible talks about hell. Jesus talks about hell. It's eternal separation from the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. It's punishment. It's justice. And when you piece together what the New Testament has to say about hell, you understand that there are no repentant people in hell. It's the final manifestation of Romans 1. It's people being given over fully to the sin that they wanted so badly. No one repents in hell. No one repents after having committed this sin. So let me just say it as clearly as I can say it because there's so many questions about this sin. Let me say two things clearly. Number one, if you are truly a born-again Christian, that means you've truly repented of your sin and trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you cannot commit this sin. If you have truly, by God's grace, been born again, you have new life, Jesus is holding on to you. We believe in the security of the believer. 
what began with your initial repentance and faith continues throughout the Christian life, continued repentance, continued faith. Yes, you will sin, but when you sin, you feel conviction and you'll repent. If you are truly a believer, you can not commit this sin. And on the same note, if you're not a Christian, but you want to repent of your sin and you want to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you have not committed this sin. So some of you maybe have walked in the room this morning and you say, I have never trusted in Jesus. Done a lot of church things, been to a lot of church services, or maybe you haven't. Maybe you just say, I've never trusted in Jesus. I've never repented of my sin and put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you sit here today, you feel conviction about your sin. You realize that you've sinned against a holy God. You believe that Jesus is the only hope that you have of salvation. And you want to turn from your sin. You want to confess your sin to God and receive the gift of salvation. If you have that desire, it's a God-given desire. And it's a sign that you have not committed the sin that Jesus is talking about here. Believers cannot commit this sin. Those who have a desire to follow Jesus have not committed this sin. Now, there is one verse that we have not said really anything about, and it's verse 28. Look in your Bible at Mark 3, 28. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. I think we treat that verse instinctively like flyover territory. You know what flyover territory is for a politician, a flyover state? Like we used to live in Oklahoma. That's a flyover state. You can spend all the money you want there. You can campaign all you want. You can have all the events you want. That's a red state. Every county, red. Nobody's going to spend any money there. They're just going to fly over and go to a battleground state. It's flyover territory. Listen, you and I, because we take forgiveness for granted, because we think we are owed forgiveness, we just skip right over verse 28. We like to argue and debate about verse 29, and we just sort of fly over verse 28. Did you hear what it says? It says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. I love what one commentator says. His last name is Brooks. He says this, the plain and wonderful truth of verse 28 must not be overlooked because of the difficulty of verse 29. I understand verse 29 is difficult, but don't you dare miss verse 28. Don't you dare be like toddlers playing with toys in the nursery. You ever worked in the nursery? You ever played with your kids or your grandkids? Okay, this will be easy. Billy, Tommy. Billy is playing with a blue truck. Tommy has access to all the other trucks. Which one does he want? I don't care about these. I want that one. And I'm going to throw a temper tantrum until I get it. This is like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God creates these people. He puts them in a beautiful garden. And he literally says to them, you can have all the trees. It's all yours. I'm giving it to you as a gift. Don't eat that one. 
Don't eat that one. What do they do? That's the one we want. You can leave this morning, you can leave this passage focused on the one thing that Jesus singles out and says we'll never have forgiveness. But you'll leave like Tommy wishing he had the blue truck. You'll leave like Adam and Eve focused on the one tree they weren't supposed to eat and you will miss the beauty and the glory of verse 28. Right in the middle of this controversial passage, a beautiful statement of the hope of the gospel. This is what I want you to see. Jesus offers to forgive our sins and our blasphemies. He offers to forgive. He doesn't owe us forgiveness because we don't understand how bad sin is and we don't have a proper view of the holiness of God. We tend to think that God is only there to forgive us, like that's his job. He just does it. You read verse 28 and you say, yeah, of course. No, not of course. Verse 28 ought to knock your socks off. All your sins and all your blasphemies can be forgiven. It's a remarkable offer. You are not owed that. The wages of your sin is death. That's what you're owed. That's your due. God's offering forgiveness. It's offering forgiveness. Psalm 103. It's talking about the God of Israel and it says, He's a God who forgives all your iniquity. He's not like the pagan deities, petty, vengeful, spiteful. He will forgive your iniquity. It's what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He will clean you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you all the sins, all the blasphemies will be forgiven. How is it possible? Secondly, Jesus died for sinners and blasphemers. When you make sense of a passage like this, one of the things you have to do is listen to what the text says and doesn't say, but another thing that you have to do is keep reading backwards and forwards. And if you keep reading in the Gospel of Mark, which I hope you're doing, you'll come to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die as a ransom for sinful people. It's what you read in Romans chapter five, verse eight. While we were still sinners, God showed his love in that Christ died for us. Second Corinthians 5, 21. The one who knew no sin at all became sin for us so that we who are sinful could become the righteousness of God. He died for us. That's how this offer of forgiveness is real. It's not just a big lie. A lot of you hear that offer of forgiveness and you say, oh yeah, that's too good to be true. It's not. It's a genuine offer of forgiveness because the Son of Man came and he gave his life as a ransom for sinful people. Lastly, Jesus offers grace to those who repent and believe. This is where we read backwards. We go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus, the very first things that he says when he preached, began preaching, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Change your mind about sin, turn your life around, and believe the good news about Jesus Christ. It's what you read in 1 John 1, 19. If you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you 
and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins to him. All your sins, all your blasphemies, confess them. He will forgive you if you confess them. It's Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. This is a complicated passage. People argue about it. You may not think I'm exactly on base when it comes to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We ought to argue about difficult passages. We ought to try to figure out exactly what the text says and what it doesn't say. We ought to try to understand it in the context of the rest of the Bible. Just don't miss the hope of the gospel in a passage about sin. What a tragedy to leave today focused on sin rather than being focused on forgiveness. What a tragedy if we leave like a toddler throwing temper tantrums that there's one toy we don't get to play with, there's one tree we don't get to eat from, there's one sin that Jesus says will not have forgiveness rather than leaving as people who know forgiveness and who have confessed our sins and who have believed the truth about Jesus. Let's pray together.